You guys, welcome to episode 92 of The Smush Room, the podcast that deep dives into well-known and more importantly, not so well-known hookups of your favorite reality TV stars. It's me, Troy McKeady. Um, how's it going? First of all, good to see you. You look good. Snatched as always. Um, let me just start by saying that I am a little bit scatterbrained right now because I was just doing, uh, I was kind of doing research for two episodes at once um obviously the one that we're going to be talking about today and then i also am recording a bonus episode about everything involving free britney um i'm so beyond overwhelmed by it and it's been developing so consecutively for the past couple of weeks that i didn't know when the right time would be to try and record something so i'm just going to throw caution to the wind Brittany was released today from uh, the hospital and literally like minute by minute, more things are coming out. And I wanted to talk about it. You guys have been messaging me and deeming me about how I feel about what's going on. And uh, yeah, I want to do an episode just on my thoughts and feelings surrounding this crazy situation. Um, But as far as and I'm pretty sure that'll be you'll hear this before you see that bonus episode. Um, But I also wanted to... uh, I was going back and looking at old episodes and ones that I've done recently, trying to kind of navigate where I wanted to go next. And I really, really enjoyed that Tiger Woods scandal. I love the scandal of it all. I love a cheating scandal. They're actually my favorite episodes of this podcast. And um, I wanted to kind of dip my toe into something similar and try and find a relationship that had a similar sort of uh, insane unraveling in the media and um, I stumbled upon a <laughs> a little cheating scandal in the 90s, in 1995 to be exact, involving Hugh Grant and Elizabeth Hurley. You may have heard of it. Hugh Grant was arrested for um, getting a blowjob in a parking lot from a prostitute. And it was a groundbreaking news story. It really, really had a major effect on the news cycle for the next, you know, 10 years. And is one of the most definitive things to come out of the 90s. Um, This is something that took place a year after Heidi Fleiss's Little Black Book was released, after Charlie Sheen's um, big scandal that we spoke about a few months ago. And I just thought it would be fascinating uh, to revisit this time. I, You guys know that I love a romantic comedy, and Hugh Grant is definitely one of my favorite like if i had to pick hugh grant or like matthew mcconaughey or whoever whoever else would be a contender for like the fa- the the faces of like the male lead in a romantic comedy like i would choose hugh grant i am drawn to his particular kind of humor i love his like dry self-deprecating british uh sensibility and i just i love him he's attractive in a weird way that like almost doesn't make sense i feel like most of the time that we've spent looking at his face, I feel like we've all been collectively trying to figure it out more. So it's not, he's not a man that you look at and immediately think like, wow, he's gorgeous. And I would want to be with him for the rest of my life. He kind of looks like, um, I don't know. He, he's, he's got an unusual face and he's, he's funny. And I just, I find the way that this entire situation was handled to be one of the most, um, interesting, I don't know, sort of PR moves in celebrity history. Um, You know, this scandal of him having sex with this prostitute did nothing but help his career, honestly, in retrospect. And 
I don't know, Elizabeth Hurley is just fucking beautiful, and she's a chanteuse, and she's very iconic, and I don't know, I thought it would be fun to talk about them. <laughs> so we should go ahead and get started with some housekeeping. Hugh Grant and Elizabeth Hurley started dating in 1987. They met on the set of a film, and they separated in May of the year 2000. They were together for a really, really long time. I don't think people realize that they were together for like 13 years before they decided to split, and she's stuck by her man. In the the words of Katie Holmes, that's her man, that's her man. She stood by him through this whole cheating scandal for years. Um... And this, I would say, definitely goes down in history as one of, if not the most iconic, it's definitely in the top three cheating scandals of all time. He's up there with Tiger for sure. Um, there, he, he, he walked so Tiger could fly, let's be honest. Um, as we all know, he was arrested for hooking up with a prostitute in 1995, aka sex worker. Things have changed a lot since the 90s. Um, I obviously want to revisit the scandal and I want to go through it in in intricate detail as we typically do, but I also really want to revisit how Hugh was able to rehabilitate his career um, immediately. I mean, truly like days after this took place in a way that I can't really recall another person that I can think of like off the top of my head in pop culture that has handled it in the way that he did. I can't think of anybody or anybody in the past, the way that he really stood in front of it. He took all the shots and he just kind of made a mockery of himself. He used the same sort of self-deprecating funny guy bullshit that we fell in love with. And the reason that we loved him for so, you know, um, that we've loved him for so many years in these specific kinds of movies. He basically used that tactic to uh, brainwash and brainwash us into thinking that this was no big deal. And it worked. Um, I'm actually going to start today with Hugh because Elizabeth Hurley was pretty much an unknown at the time that they were together. And uh, the way that she became very famous is actually really iconic as well. So I kind of wanted to lead into it. Um, But Hugh Grant really grew up in a way that I would imagine like the way that I wrote it on my notes is that this is what I picture a hillbilly who doesn't know anything about the UK would imagine a person from the UK to grow up just solely based on, like, films and television cliches. Um, they, like, the things that would make you wonder, like, how does a person's life actually exist this way? He was born into an extremely posh and decorated family. Uh, his mother, who passed away in 2001, worked as a school teacher. She taught Latin and French and music for 30 years in West London. And his father, uh, Captain Jerry Murray Grant, was an officer in the British Army for eight years, he was also a very celebrated painter and a golfer, um, and his true, the way that their family supported themselves is that his dad owned a carpet company. And um, his family tree includes all of these really distinguished, respected men who have built empires, and there's a couple, there's a former prime minister. Um, I'm not going to really bother reading their names because truly what would be the point, but I say all that just to say that this is a man who was born into a situation where no matter where he decided to go or what he decided to do, it would result in some grandiose life um, that he would be remembered for. And in the 1970s, the uh, recession steamrolled his dad's business and basically wiped out their entire livelihood, which meant 
uh, everything that they had prior was all gone. They were left with nothing. And even through that, his parents were still, you know, they were still distinguished enough to put their kids' education ahead of their bills, them eating, their food, like all, you know, he, their kids going to school was the most important thing um, in their lives. He attended uh, Latimer Upper School on a rugby scholarship, and he actually represented his school in a UK television show called Top of the Form, which was basically like a a UK version of um, like student Jeopardy. And uh, in an article written about him by The Independent during that time, it said, his upbringing was exactly as you'd expect and might have been the knobby prelude to a career as an army officer or a city banker. Um, he won a scholarship to Oxford University in 1979 and received an offer to the Courtauld Institute of Art to pursue a PhD in art history and decided to uh, not take it. And he was going to, like, you know, pursue a career in acting. Um, he basically saw acting as a fun outlet that would pay for him to live a better life. He He never was... Super, he wasn't one of those people that you hear of of being super passionate about acting, like a Gwyneth Paltrow, where she like sat in the theater with her head resting on her hands, watching her mom like own a crowd. That was not Hugh Jackman. He, acting was not important to him at all. I don't, I don't think it ever was, and I, don't, I still don't think it is. Um, he made his acting debut in an Oxford-funded college film um, called Privileged, and then once he got his feet wet with acting, he started touring. Uh, with a university production called Twelfth Night. He also formed a sketch comedy group called the Jockeys of Norfolk uh, with his best friends. They would basically play in, like, pubs and in cafes. Um, And they were noticed pretty quickly. They got booked to play uh, Edinburgh Festival, and they were featured on BBC TV. So he was kind of positioning himself to be this, like, comedy guy, like, who would maybe go on to like move to the u.s and like try and write for snl or something at some point like he was like a sketch comedy person initially um he of course worked a handful of odd jobs um but comedy was the thing that really got him noticed he started writing sketches for television shows and uh, he was hired by talkback productions to write and produce um like funny commercials for like wonder bread and um beer companies like i think he did red stripe beer um and according to him at this point acting had become a way for him to save money to pursue a higher education even at this point in his life he still only really cared about going to school which is ironic given the fact that he had just dropped out i don't get it um his first true official big break came in 1987 he starred in the edwardian period piece uh maurice which was a movie about a 20th century English gay couple. And the movie went on to get him all this massive praise. He was, you know, it's gotten all this critical acclaim, um, not only for being a genuinely really good film, but for telling such an incredible um, gay love story during the height of 1980s AIDS paranoia. Um, the Los Angeles Times said, the lush, dignified maurice with its share of man-on-man smooches full frontal male nudity gay lovemaking and unabashed declarations of same-sex desire as well as a main character who was ultimately affirmative and unwavering about his homosexuality during a time when it was a criminal offense no less 
landed a unique place in then contemporary gay culture that a movie which celebrated a romance between men with a rare happy ending was released at the height of AIDS as uh, at the height of the AIDS epidemic only added to the acclaimed picture's provocative profile. And I always say, um, I always mention on this podcast that celebrities that have really long lasting careers, in my opinion, I feel like they have several big breaks. Like even somebody like Joan Rivers, I feel like she had big breaks up until she passed away. You know what I mean? Like the, just sort of reviving your career in all these different ways and taking random roads that lead you toward things that could maybe become what you're known for or um, could maybe ruin your career or send you down a really negative spiral. You know, there's like these multiple breaks that you have in your career that kind of change its trajectory for better or for worse. And this film did lead him down this very specific career path for the next few years. This is the pre like leading man era of Hugh Jackman's life this is the pre, like, actually, this is before comedy was even something associated with his name for the general public. The people who had discovered him knew he was funny, but he wasn't known at this point as a funny guy. Um, this film introduces us to this, like, aristocratic, like, nose in the air, um, uptight, very cliche kind of guy that he really kind of leaned into. He basically was playing like a version of Billy Zane in Titanic in all of his roles. You know, this very like unlikable diplomatic um, aristocrat. Ironically, during the time leading up to him being this like sort of British stereotype, Hugh Grant starred in a 1992 film called A Bitter Moon. Now, look, it was directed by Hollywood's darling, Roman Polanski. We all love him. Um, this movie is a sexual thriller about an aristocratic man. He's this married British tourist, and he falls in love with a seductive French woman who is also married and is married to an American guy. And in the movie, Hugh Grant explores all these, like, sadistic, humiliating sexual fetishes and, like, basically torments this girl on camera for two hours um, this movie was described by the Washington Post as an anti-romantic opus of sexual obsession and cruelty. And I called it ironic because Hugh Grant's next film would set him up as the literal poster child for romantic cliches in film. So it's funny that before he knew he would become like Notting Hill Hugh Grant, he starred in this like anti-romantic comedy about a girl like having BDSM shit done to her in front of a Times Square. I, 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 to be honest with you, I've never seen this movie, but I've read a lot about it. And um, it's Roman Polanski. And I can't believe that Roman Polanski made like a sadistic sex thriller in the 90s. It's like, what are you thinking? Um but yeah, I read on Hugh Grant's Wikipedia that he refers to this film. Actually, he refers to the films in the early part of his career as Euro puddings, which like, um, actually he said, you would have a French script, a Spanish director, and an English actor. The script would usually be written by a foreigner, really badly translated into English, and they'd get English actors in because they thought that that was a way to sell it to America, which is true. I mean... You take any shitty film, and us hillbillies here in America will automatically assume that because there's a British actor in the lead, that all of a sudden the movie itself has become like the step above what it was, what it could have been. You know what I mean? 
Now, I'm going to transition into Elizabeth's life because, like I said, they were both sort of not. I mean, Hugh Grant was an unknown, but he was nowhere near what he became. And Elizabeth Hurley was completely unknown before she before this very pivotal specific moment that we're about to talk about. And these are two people who really, over the course of their 13 year relationship, built their careers together. Um, ironically, Elizabeth, I'm calling her Liz, by the way, because we're on a first name basis now. I texted her and asked her if it was okay. She said that's completely fine. Um, so Liz Hurley's mother was actually a teacher as well, and her father was in the army, identical to Hugh Grant's upbringing, but their lives could not have been any more different. Um, Liz was raised in a suburb in Bassingstoke, Hampshire, where she um, actually moved because her father had retired and wanted to start a new career. So Liz also had a very posh upbringing. Um, she went to the problem, though, for her was that she went to a very mixed school where she was teased by the kids that but basically by the poor kids because she had a posh accent and the perceived wealth that her family had because of it. In an interview she did with The Sun, she said, I was at a comprehensive school in Bassingstoke and tried to overcompensate for being different by becoming rebellious. I had spiky pink hair, a nose ring and earrings, and I'm sure I upset my parents horribly. I desperately wanted to belong, which I did not, of course. I used to hang out with the local punks. They were all unemployed or builders, and we were banned from most pubs. I think what happened is that so many men took an interest in me that I wanted to make myself look as ghastly as possible. I didn't want them to whistle at me anymore. And uh, the thing about this phase in her life that, you know, she was presenting, it's interesting because she was presenting as this kid, this like punk kid from the wrong side of the tracks who didn't give a fuck about, you know, where she ended up or where she came from, when really it was the complete opposite of who she was as a person. Uh, she was actually like white knuckling it to get through school and have good grades and like make her parents proud. And she very desperately wanted to go to college. She really wanted to graduate. Like education was also really, really important to her, but she was living her life as this person who like didn't give a fuck, which I love. It's like very, very, very Degrassi. You know what I mean? It's very dramatic. Um, during her punk phase, she also attended ballet school uh, but actually attended school so infrequently that she forgot she was enrolled and she was uh, considered AWOL when she took a vacation to the Greek islands with her friends and didn't realize until she was on a plane that she hadn't even told anybody she wasn't coming to school anymore. Um, so she ended up dyeing her hair back to black. She like had that moment that we all have as teenagers when you're done sort of like trying to make people react to you via the way you look in like a, you know what I mean? Or it's like, I'm going to dye my hair this color and spike it up so that everybody who walks by me knows that I'm pissed off at my mom. I want everybody to know that I slammed my door shut really hard this morning. And the way that I'm going to get that across is by cutting fingers off my gloves and wearing them to the grocery store with my mom. And I don't give a fuck. You know what I mean? She, she had decided that that phase of her life was over. Um, she took out her nose rings and she was ready to pursue a professional career. She ended up touring uh, with a play organized by Derek Nemo. And she went from like hanging out with these like jobless alcoholics to traveling around the world. Um, she was staying at like the best hotels in the country. And she literally, after the show every night, they had a scheduled 
9 p.m. champagne reception where she would like it was like literally for her like she would put on a really sexy dress and like walk down a flight of stairs and the entire room would clap for her and basically they would photograph her and she would be celebrated for being beautiful and talented like they gave her a party every night because she was pretty not very, I mean, honestly, not that much different than my life. Like, I, I feel like that's why me and Liz, like, relate on such an intense level. Um, so, Hugh and Elizabeth actually met in 1987 on the set of a film called Rowing with the Wind, which was Liz's, you know, feature film debut. And they hit it off pretty immediately on set. They were, like, flirting and everybody could tell pretty immediately that they were going to be a thing. Um, he took her out on a date shortly after... She told People Magazine, Hugh did look particularly fine in those cream britches. Uh, I feel uncomfortable that I just said the word britches. Um, She has said of his Byron-esque attire during the shooting of their movie. But I think I might have liked him anyway. There was an instant rapport between us because he made me laugh. So fairly quickly into the relationship, they kind of stopped. They weren't really able to spend that much time together. Hugh was traveling all over the world for these films that he was doing. And at the particular point that they met each other, he was about to become one of the most famous people in the entire world. Because we have to talk about this film that you may or may not have seen or may or may not have heard of called Four Weddings and a Funeral. It's amazing. Um, I mean, he was on the brink of giving up acting before he did this movie, which ended up winning him an Oscar nomination uh, in 1994. And during the time, he said, if you've read as many bad scripts as I did, then you would know how grateful you are when one comes across where the guy that you're supposed to be playing is actually funny. Uh, this movie cost $2 million to make, and it grossed over $245 million at the box office, making it the highest grossing British film to date. Uh, it also made Hugh Grant an international movie star. Um, his specific brand of being this like bumbling, stuttering, charming, like self-deprecating dork really, really resonated with people. Like people were enamored by Hugh Grant during this time. Um, and it, it's funny because it was to the point that it kind of became his brand and the thing that he was known for and the thing that he was celebrated for and that he really leaned into and then slowly transitioned into him being trapped by, which then led to him never really wanting to act again. I mean, at this point, Hugh Grant is pretty open about the fact that he like hates Hollywood. He hates acting. Um, he's been completely scorned by it because he really, really, he painted himself into this very specific corner. It was almost too, he was too good at doing a thing that he didn't even really enjoy doing in the first place. And this movie is a peak moment in the relationship, not only because it set him up as this leading man and, you know, the choice romantic comedy king of the 90s and early 2000s, but it also positioned Hugh and Liz as a power couple. All of a sudden, she was really important and people were really, really fascinated by this beautiful woman that he had hooked onto his arm at red carpets. And if you are of a particular age, you may or may not remember them showing up to a very particular red carpet, the premiere for this movie. It's hands down one of the most iconic and influential moments in 
fashion history. The black Versace safety pin dress. Uh, during the time of the premiere, Elizabeth was only 28 years old. And the world knew little to nothing about her aside from the fact that she was just pretty. She was this pretty girl that hung out with Hugh Jackman. He, I can't. I'm actually not even correcting that. Um, she also knew nothing about fashion, which is interesting. Uh, you know, she had never really been styled by anybody for a red carpet. So her instinct was to do it herself because if you've never been famous or had a lot of money, why would you assume that people are going to come dress you for an, an event? Uh, and this was also the 90s. Things were so different back then. So she did her own hair and makeup. Actually, this year she told Bazaar... She said, I urgently needed to find a dress to wear for Hughes premiere. And in those days, I had no idea about fashion. I remember going to an office where they literally fished a dress out of a white plastic bag. And they said, I'm sorry. And she said, I took it home and did my own hair and makeup. I was fighting with Hugh in the mirror, uh, which wasn't even a full length. It was in our tiny one bedroom flat. It was all very unglamorous compared to how things are done these days. And. Wearing that dress made Liz a household name and literally changed the direction that fashion was headed in the 90s. It was also, you know, hugely impactful in what would become known as like the Versace look of the 90s. Um, this moment actually got Liz an Estee Lauder contract with no prior modeling experience, a gig that she had for 16 years. Uh, she signed a $12 million contract because of a dress. If you've never seen any photos of the dress that I'm referencing, I would definitely suggest you get on Google right now. If you just Google Liz Hurley black dress or black Versace dress. Um, I mean, if you don't know it, why are you listening to this podcast? First of all, like, how is that even possible? Also, Lady Gaga just recently, not recently, but I, I'm pretty sure it was during the art pop phase. She actually brought the dress out of storage and wore it out of her uh, out of her apartment. Anyway, um, Hugh told the Calgary Herald in 1995, my life right now is very, very busy. It's much too busy, actually. Um, he said, at the moment, I can't really cope. Uh, that makes me very ratty. I'm thoroughly unpleasant to my girlfriend about it. Mind you, she's actually thoroughly, thoroughly unpleasant to me as well. She's under a tremendous amount of pressure. I mean... To go from being unknown and having nobody know your name, nobody know who you are, nobody care about you, aside from the fact that you're just like this pretty girl, and then you go on a red carpet and you put on what you presume to be a pretty dress, just like everybody else that's there, they're all wearing pretty dresses, and then to go to sleep and wake up the next day, a name that every single person in the entire country knows because you picked the right dress, I can't even fathom it. It's unimaginable. It's unreal. Honestly, it's fucking unbelievable. Um, now, this does lead us into uh, talking about this particular incident that I've been referencing this entire episode. The incident. So, on Tuesday, June 27th of 1995, Hugh, who was in L.A. to promote a film, um, he had spent... Most of his day just doing typical like publicity and press junkets and panels, answering questions. Uh, the movie starred Tom Arnold and Jeff Goldblum. So he was spending the entire day kind of answering questions with them and doing stuff. And he spent the afternoon doing laps in the pool at the Beverly Hills Four Seasons and relaxing. 
And then that following Monday, his day off, he decided to get some sushi with the director of the movie that he was in L.A. to promote. They had a late dinner. The director went back to his hotel and, well, half past midnight after dinner, he got in his BMW. He headed down Sunset Boulevard and an hour into his drive, he pulled his car over where he propositioned a now iconic Miss Divine Marie Brown, a then 23-year-old woman who was described by the police as a, quote, known prostitute. So she got in his car. They turned down a residential street and they parked. A few minutes later, two officers walked over to his parked BMW and arrested them for what was described as lewd acts in public. Um, As soon as the news broke, the story spread all over the fucking world like wildfire. This was the biggest news story at the moment. I mean, if you really think about where we are at this time, a year before this, what was it, like a year prior, or maybe around the same time, uh, Nicole Brown Simpson had been murdered. Um, And like I mentioned previously, Heidi Fleiss's little black book had been released, and Charlie Sheen was being you know, publicly humiliated by his sex scandal. So the media and the public were already like, you know, Pandora's box had opened. You guys, I hate to cut you off, but at this point, I think you know the drill. You've got to be a Patreon member to hear the remainder of this episode. So go to patreon.com slash ebpsychos. At that point, you will uh, be asked to donate. And then when you donate at this level, you'll get this podcast. You'll get the remainder of all the episodes every single week. You'll get Liz Bentley's Feathers in My Hair, which is the Teen Mom podcast. Um, You'll get me and Molly's uh, Brittany and Kevin Chaotic special. You'll get all the stuff that Molly does exclusively through Patreon. It's well worth it. And also, if you're not a member of our Facebook group, go to mollyandthepsychos.com. It'll take you straight to it. And uh, all we do all day and all night is talk about reality TV. It's super fun. So, like I said, patreon.com slash ebpsychos and mollyandthepsychos.com. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.